Chapter Ten of the Castle of the Carpathians by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Such had been this lamentable history. For a month, Franz de Tillet's life was in danger. He recognized nobody, not even his man Rotzko. In the height of his fever, but one name escaped his lips, which were ready to part with their last breath. It was that of Lastilla. The young count did not die. The skill of the doctors, the incessant care of Rotzko, together with his own youth and constitution, saved Franz de Tillac. His reason emerged uninjured from this terrible struggle. But when memory returned to him, when he recalled the final tragic scene in Orlando, in which the soul of the artist had left her, Stilla! My Stilla! he cried, stretching out his hands as if he were applauding. As soon as his master could leave his bed, Rotzko persuaded him to leave this accursed town and allow himself to be carried home to the castle of Krajoa. But before he left Naples, the young Count wished to go and pray over the grave of the dead, and bid her a last and eternal farewell. Rotzko accompanied him to Campo Santo Nuevo. There Franz threw himself on the cruel ground. He would have torn it up with his fingernails to bury himself by her side. Rotzko at last managed to get him away from the grave, where he had left all his life and all his happiness. A few days afterwards, Franz de Telec had returned to Crajoa, to his old family estate. There he lived for four years in absolute retirement, never leaving the castle. Neither time nor distance could alleviate his grief. He would have forgotten, but it was impossible. The remembrance of Lestilla, vivid as on the first day, was bound up with his life, and the wound would close only with his death. At the time our story begins, the young Count had left the castle for some weeks. What long and pressing arguments Rotzko had had to prevail on his master to abandon the solitude in which he was wasting away. Consolation might be impossible, but an attempt at distraction might at least be made. A plan of a tour was then decided on, which consisted in first visiting the Transylvanian provinces. Later, Rotzko hoped that the young count would agree to resume the European journey, which had been interrupted by the sad events at Naples. Franz de Telec had set out for only a short exploration. He and Rotzko had crossed the Wallachian plains up to the imposing mass of the Carpathians. They had been among the Vulcan defiles, and after an ascent of Retizat, and an excursion across the valley of the Maros, they had come for a rest to the village of Worst, to the King Matthias Inn. We know the state of affairs when Franz de Telec arrived, and how he had been informed of the incomprehensible occurrences of which the castle had been the scene. We also know how he had ascertained that the castle belonged to Baron Rodolphe de Gortz. The effect produced by his name was too apparent for Master Colts and the other notables not to notice it and Rotzko would have cheerfully sent to the devil this master Colts, who had so inopportunely uttered it and his stupid stories. Why should some ill chance have brought Franz de Telec to this very village of Worst, in the neighborhood of the castle of the Carpathians? The young Count had become silent. This look, wandering from one to the other, only too clearly indicated the deep trouble of his mind, which he was seeking in vain to calm. Master Colts and his friends understood that some mysterious tie must exist between the Count de Telec and the Baron de Gortz. But, inquisitive as they were, they maintained a seemly reserve and did not seek to take an advantage. Later on they would see what they could do. A few minutes afterwards everyone had left the King Matthias, much perplexed this extraordinary chain of adventures, which foreboded no good to the village. And now that the young Count knew to whom the castle of the Carpathians belonged, would he keep his promise? If he went to Carlsberg, would he report the matter to the authorities and demand their intervention? That was what the bureau, the schoolmaster, Dr. Patak, and others were asking. If he did not do so, 
Master Colts had resolved to do so. The police had been informed of what had occurred. They would visit the castle. They would see if it were haunted by spirits or inhabited by criminals, for the village could remain no longer under such a state of affairs. This would, it is true, be quite useless in the opinion of most of the inhabitants. To attack the spirits, the swords of the gendarmes would be broken like glass, and their guns would misfire each time. Franz de Tillac, left alone in the large room of the King Matthias, abandoned himself to the recollections which the name of Baron de Gortz had so unhappily evoked. After remaining in an armchair for an hour, as if he were quite exhausted, he rose, left the saloon, and went out to the end of the terrace and looked away in the distance. On the place a ridge, bounded by the Orgal Plateau, rose the castle of the Carpathians. There had lived that strange personage, the frequenter of San Carlo, the man who had inspired such insurmountable terror in the unfortunate Lastilla. But at present the castle was deserted, and Baron de Gortz had not returned to it since he had fled from Naples. None knew what had become of him, and it was possible he had put an end to his existence after the death of the great artist. Franz wandered in this way across the field of supposition, knowing not where to stop. On the other hand, the adventure of the forester Nick Deck to a certain extent troubled him, and he would have liked to have unraveled the mystery for only to reassure the people of Worst. Added to this, the young count had no doubt that it was a band of thieves who had taken refuge in the castle, and he had resolved to keep his promise and put a stop to the maneuvers of those sham ghosts by giving information to the police at Carlsberg. But before taking steps in the matter, Franz resolved to have the most circumstantial details of the affair. For this object, the best thing to do was to apply to the young forester in person, and about three o'clock in the afternoon, before returning to the inn, he presented himself at the bureau's house. Master Colts showed that he was honored to receive a gentleman like the Count de Telec, this descendant of a noble Romanian race, to whom the village of Worst would be indebted for the recovery of its peace and prosperity. For then, travelers would return to visit the country, and pay the customary tolls, without having to fear the malevolent spirits of the castle of the Carpathians, etc., etc., Franz de Tillec thanked Master Colts for his compliments, and asked to be allowed to see Nick Deck, if there were no objection. "'None at all, Count,' replied the Bureau. "'The gallant Nick is going on as well as possible, and will soon return to his work.' And turning to his daughter, who had just entered the room, he said, "'Is that not true, Miriota?' "'May heaven grant it so, my father,' replied Miriota in an agitated voice. Franz was charmed by the girl's graceful greeting and seeing she was still anxious regarding the state of her betrothed, he hastened to ask her for some explanation of the subject. "'From what I have heard,' he said, "'Nick Deck has not been seriously hurt.' "'No, Count,' said Miriota, "'and heaven be praised for it. "'You have a physician at worst?' "'Hum,' said Master Colts in a tone that was not very flattering to the old quarantine man. "'We have Dr. Patak,' replied Miriota. "'He who accompanied Nick Deck to the castle of the Carpathians?' "'Yes.' I should like to see your betrothed for his own sake, and obtain the most precise details of his adventure. He will be glad to give you them, even though it may fatigue him a little. Oh, I will not abuse the opportunity, and I will do nothing to injure Nick Deck. I know that. When is your marriage to take place? In a fortnight, said the Bureau. Then I shall have the pleasure of being present if Master Colts will give me an invitation. Such an honor, Count. In a fortnight, then. It is understood and I'm sure that Nick Deck will be well again as soon as he can take a walk with his good-looking betrothed. God protect him, replied the girl as she blushed, and her charming face betrayed such apparent anxiety that Franz asked her the reason. Yes, may God protect him, replied Mariota, 
for in endeavoring to enter the castle in spite of the prohibition, Nick has defied the spirits, and who knows if they may not set themselves to injure him all his life. Oh, for that, replied Franz, we will have it all put straight, I promise you. Nothing will happen to my poor Nick? Nothing. And thanks to the police, you will be able to visit the castle in a few days, and be quite as safe as in the streets of Worst. The young Count, thinking it inopportune to discuss the question of the supernatural, asked Mariotta to show him the way to the forester's room. This the girl hastened to do, and then she left him alone with her betrothed. Nick Deck had been informed of the arrival of the two travelers at the King Matthias Inn. Seated in an old armchair as large as a sentry box, he rose to receive this visitor. As he now suffered but little from the paralysis with which he had been momentarily struck, he was sufficiently well to reply to the Count's questions. Nick Deck, said Franz, after a friendly shake of the hand, I would first ask you if you really believe in the presence of evil spirits at the castle of the Carpathians. I am compelled to believe it, replied Nick Deck. And it was they who kept you from getting over the castle wall? I have no doubt of it. And why, if you please? Because if they were not spirits, what happened to me would be inexplicable. Will you have the goodness to tell me without admitting anything what really did happen? Willingly. Nick Deck told his story item by item. He could only confirm the facts which Franz had heard in his conversation with the guests of the King Matthias, facts on which, as we know, the young Count put a purely natural interpretation. In short, the occurrences of this night of adventure could be easily explained if human beings, criminal or otherwise, occupied the castle, and had the machinery capable of producing these phantasmal effects. As to Dr. Batak's peculiar assertion that he was chained to the ground by some force, it could only be supposed that he had been the sport of some illusion. What was most likely was that his limbs had failed him simply because he was mad with terror, and that Franz declared to the young forester. What, said Nick Deck, would it be at the moment he wanted to run that his legs would fail the coward? That is hardly likely, you must admit. Well, continued Franz, let us admit that his legs were caught in some trap, probably hidden under the grass at the bottom of the ditch. When a trap closes, said the forester, it hurts you cruelly, it tears your flesh, and Dr. Patak's legs have no trace of a wound. Your observation is correct, Nick Deck, but if it will be true that the doctor could not get away, it must be that his legs were caught in some snare. Then I will ask you how this snare would open itself and set the doctor at liberty. Franz was too much puzzled to reply. But, Count, I leave to you all that concerns Dr. Patak. After all, I can only speak of what I know of myself. Yes, let us leave the doctor and speak of what happened to you, Nick Deck. What happened to me was clear enough. There is no doubt I received a terrible shock, and that in a way that is unnatural. There is no appearance of a wound on your body, asked Franz. None, and yet I was struck with terrible violence. Was it just when you put your hand on the ironwork of the drawbridge? Yes, just as I touched it. I seemed as if it were paralyzed. Fortunately, my hand which held the chain did not leave go, and I slipped down to the bottom of the ditch where the doctor found me senseless. Franz shook his head with the air of a man whom these explanations left incredulous. You see, continued Nick Deck, what I have told you is no dream, and if for eight days I remained full length in the bed without the use of arms or legs, it is not reasonable to say I must have imagined it all. I do not attempt to do that, said the Count. It is only too certain you received a brutal shock. Brutal and diabolic. No, and in that we differ, Nick Deck. You believe you were struck by some supernatural being, and I do not believe there are supernatural beings, either good or evil. Will you then explain what happened to me? 
I cannot do that yet, Nick Deck, but rest assured all will be explained, in the most simple manner. May God grant it so. Tell me, said Franz, has this castle belonged all along to the Gortz family? Yes, and it belongs to it now, although the last descendant of the family, Baron Rudolph, disappeared, and no one had heard of him since. When did he disappear? About twenty years ago. Twenty years? Yes. One day Baron Rudolph left the castle, of which the last servant died a few months after his departure, and no one has seen him since. And since then no one has set foot in the castle? No one. And what is thought about him in the neighborhood? It is supposed that Baron Rudolph died abroad a short time after he disappeared. Then it is supposed wrong, Nick Deck. The Baron is still alive. At least he was so five years ago. He's alive? Yes, in Italy. At Naples. You have seen him? I have seen him. And during the five years? I have heard nothing about him. The young forester thought for a moment or so. An idea had occurred to him, an idea he hesitated to formulate. At length he made up his mind, and, raising his head and knitting his brow, he said, It is not supposable that Baron de Gortz has returned to the country with the intention of shutting himself up in the castle. No, it is not supposable, Nick Deck. What object would he have in hiding himself, in never letting anyone come near him? None, replied Franz de Telec. And yet this was the thought which had begun to take shape in the mind of the young count. Was it not possible that this personage, whose existence had always been so enigmatic, had taken refuge in the castle after he left Naples? There, thanks to superstitious belief skillfully acted upon, would it not be easy for him to live in isolation, to defend himself against every unwelcome search, it being understood that he knew the state of mind that prevailed in the surrounding country? But yet Franz thought it useless to launch the Wurstians on this hypothesis. It would have been necessary to have put them in possession of facts which were too personal to him. Besides, he would have convinced nobody, and that he saw clearly enough when Nick Deck added, If it is Baron Rodolph who is in the castle, we shall have to believe that Baron Rodolph is the chort, for only the chort could have treated me in this way. Desirous of not returning over the same ground, Franz changed the course of the conversation. After employing every means to reassure the young forester as to the consequence of his attempt, he made his promise not to renew it. That was not his affair, it was the business of the authorities, and the Carlsberg police would know how to discover the mystery of the castle of the Carpathians. The young count then took leave of Nick Deck, recommending him to get well as quickly as possible, so as not to delay his marriage with the fair Miriota, at which he promised to be present. Absorbed in his reflections, Franz returned to the King Matthias, and did not go out again that day. At six o'clock Jonas served his dinner in the large room, when by a praiseworthy feeling of reserve neither Master Colts nor any of the villagers came to trouble his solitude. About eight o'clock, Rotsko said to the young Count, Do you have no further need of me, Master? No, Rotsko. Then I will go and smoke my pipe on the terrace. Go, Rotsko, go. Lounging in an armchair, Franz again began to think of all that had passed. He was at Naples during the last performance at the San Carlo Theatre. He saw the Baron de Gortz at the moment when, for the first time, this man appeared to him, his head out of the box, his look ardently fixed on the artiste as if he would fascinate her. Then his thoughts recurred to the letter signed by the strange personage, which accused him, Franz Etelec, of having killed Lestilla. Lost in his recollections, Franz felt sleep come over him little by little, but it was still in that transition state when one could perceive the least noise when a surprising phenomenon took place. 
It seemed that a voice, sweet and modulated, made itself heard in the room, where Franz was alone, quite alone. Without knowing whether he dreamt or not, Franz rose and listened. Yes, it seemed as though a mouth came close to his ear, and invisible lips gave forth the expressive melody of Stefano, inspired by these words. Nel giardino de mille fiori andiamo mio cuore. This romance Franz knew. This romance of ineffable sweetness Lestilla had sung in the concert she had given at the San Carlo Theater before her farewell performance. Unconsciously, Franz abandoned himself to the charm of hearing it once again. Then the phrase ended, and the voice, gradually growing fainter, died away with the last vibrations of the air. But Franz roused himself from his torpor. He straightened himself up abruptly. He held his breath to see some distant echo of his voice which went to his heart. All was silent within and without. Her voice, he murmured. Yes, it was really her voice. The voice I love so much. Then, returning to himself, he said, I was asleep, and I dreamed. End of chapter 10